Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. I'm always asking guests about their motivations and why they choose to fight through the systems the way that they do. So for this episode, I wanted some more insight into my own. And with it being Father's Day today, I thought I would invite my dad to the show to talk about what politicized him, what shaped his working class consciousness and sense of duty to the good fight. We start off by finding out how those closest to him help instill certain values. He shares stories of family members that are surprisingly new to me, stories that remind me this fight has been going on for generations. Each one of us doing what we can with the time that we have and making sure to pass on what we can. With all the influence family has, it becomes clear that it was my dad's time in the trade union movement of the late 60s and early 70s that had the most profound, lasting impact. He says as much, and it was there that those values taught to him were tested and put to work. This is also where he enters the realm of partisan politics as a member of the NDP and the Waffle Party within. Anyone who's listened to the show will also certainly hear some real similarities to my experience with the NDP and when my dad talks about his time with the Waffle Party, from the drivers to the consequences of trying to push the party left from within. This discussion isn't just timely because we're celebrating father figures, but because my dad's in his biggest fight of his life against cancer. So it became even more important for me to create a bit of a historical record of my dad's life through a very political lens. This is because politics largely defines who I am, what I'm driven to do with my time here. I needed to have this discussion. I needed to absorb as much as I could, and I wanted to be able to preserve it. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't sure whether or not I would use this recording as an episode until I listened back to it during the editing process. We touch on so many themes that we explore here on Blueprints, and it really does help explain to you, the audience, where I'm coming from. And since I've already shared so much of myself, I thought you folks would enjoy hearing me walk down memory lane with my dad. Hello. <laughs> Strange having you here. Can you introduce yourself for the audience? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, my name is John McLean. I am Jess's father. I also go by Ian for some people who may be watching this. And uh, yeah, and only because Ian is Scottish Gaelic for John. Uh, I've been asked to um, speak on, on this podcast today and touch on my background within the trade union movement and within the Waffle Party and any other related subjects <laughs> that my host might ask me, I guess, and where I may lead. Well, thank you for coming. It's a bit unconventional for me to be interviewing my own dad, but uh, there's a story we want to tell here and, and more. Right. This is um, 
a little bit of family therapy mixed with political history. And, you know, maybe I'll get to learn stuff about you that I didn't even know. Okay. Let's start at the beginning, so to speak. Who politicized you? Oh, lots of people. Tell me. I, I, I think the first um, was my granny. So I immigrated to Canada uh, when I was 12 years old in 1964 and left my granny in Scotland. And so she, but I spent, a, she lived with us and I spent an awful lot of my time with my granny and she had some old sayings that I would hear her say to her children, always vote for the right person, do the right thing. And she, uh, as I said, she spent a lot of time with me and had a huge influence um, on me just because of the person she was. I did find out later in life from and from Canada that my granny, my granny Steele was actually on the Labour uh, Council of, of Glasgow. And her husband, uh, Jimmy Steele, who I never, I never met. He died, I think, the year exactly a year or so before I was born. These are Nana's parents. These are Nana's parents. My mom's parents. Um, Jimmy was a foreman in the shipyards, sort of bowler hat attitude, and and those. So the story goes that my my granny would tell her husband Jimmy that she was busy with school boards. As she was attending these Labour Party meetings, and secretary, secretary, <laughs> school board, were, that was more. Yeah, was it more acceptable for her to be doing something school board? Yeah, I I think it was a, a excuse the expression a woman's thing to sit on the they call them in North America the PTAs and and all of that. So I guess my granny would lie to to her husband, and 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 the reason <laughs> she would lie is. Uh, the class system, and and when you were a foreman in the shipyards, you did wear a shirt and tie to work, even though you were in amongst all the workers, and and uh, you you did dress up. A practice that was continued probably to this day, and I'm not sure what they do in factories anymore. We don't have many, but uh, when I worked in factories, the the white collar workers were still wore shirt and ties. In construction, they wear a white hat. In construction, they wear a white hat. Yeah, yeah. Look at me, look at me. And uh, the class system still exists. So the class system existing, uh, Jeannie never told him she was in the uh, Secretary of Labor Party. But she had uh, great influence on on her children. She truly was, uh, a lot of children they had, 17 or or Zoom. I think it was 17 in total children, and she had a huge influence on those children. That I And it wasn't through fear. Um, it was through admiration. They would show up every Sunday to the house that we lived in. So you can imagine the pandemonium of the household I lived in. It was uh, all my aunts and uncles and cousins. And it, was, it, was, it was quite an upbringing. I had a lot of uh, good social values there. It was, and it, you would call them a blue collar family in those days, working class people. Lived in a really nice house, but it was a corporation house. It was owned by the, the corporations. So it was owned by the people. And your rent, if you want to call it, was paid to the corporation and, and paid to the people. It might be an answer for Toronto with our housing problems right now. Are you talking about like a form of cooperative housing? It very, but they very, formed a corporation to run it? Yes. 
So okay, cool. The council actually formed the corporation with the wishes of the people, right? Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, and it was cool. We had whole neighborhoods. They were all corporation houses. Not all, but within it, there was blocks and blocks and blocks of corporation houses. And they were nice. They weren't disrespectful because you were poor or had had less money that you, you couldn't afford a uh, private home. So anyway, we immigrated to Canada. Da, 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 da. I went to high school and there, there was incidents that shaped me within high school. I'd heard my mom and dad talk about the NDP. They were, I guess we called them card-carrying members within the NDP. They belonged to the NDP. They voted for the NDP. And in high school, I was studying, I guess, political science, we call it today. It wasn't much to that. It was how the government was formed and structured. And I think that's more than they teach them now. <laughs> yeah, the Senate and, and, uh, and the subject of political parties came up. And I stuck up my hand since they hadn't or had failed to mention the NDP. <laughs> and I stuck up my hand and I, I said, what about the NDP or words to that extent? We're going back a long time. And I was not scolded by the teacher, but I was poo-pooed by the teacher in the mansion of the NDP. And it was very much discounted. Dismissive. Right? Yeah, very much dismissive. A sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's move on. That stuck with me, obviously, for all all these years that this political party uh, would be poo-pooed. And, but it, it meant a lot to me and because my mom and dad voted for them. And I knew what they stood for, even at that age. I'd be about 15 by that time. And I knew at that age that what we were, we were, we were working class. I don't think I learned the word socialist yet, but that's who we were. We were socialists. And, and I we, we voted for the working class party. So anyway, I, so I got a job in sales. And, um, <laughs> I fucking hate sales. <laughs> oh, I hate, I'm white collar and, and uh, I was selling uh, uh, reproduction supplies and, and oh my God, it, we're dating ourselves at, at Xerox machines. Is that why you held on to your old fax machine so, for so long? Know, it's you were I the only one in that office later with that stupid crinkly paper. No, I'm just incompetent with new uh, new, new equipment. Oh, okay. So I like the old stuff. It took me long enough to learn. So I, I went to work with Canadian Off-Rex and I, and I got a telephone call from my dad or my dad talked to me at home. I'm not quite sure which came first and said to me, I can get you into the aircraft industry where both my mom – and my dad worked, which was uh, Douglas Aircraft in those days. I don't think it had become McDonnell Douglas yet. And that was located in Malton, Ontario. We lived in Rexdale. And uh, I was a sales trainee, the up-and-coming sales trainee for Canadian Offrex. And once, once my dad told me how much they were paying me on an hourly rate, even though I was going to be a white-collar worker, it was still an hourly rate. And once they told me what it was on an hourly rate, I didn't care about the benefits, which were absolutely marvelous. You're too young to probably care about that at that point. I'm too young to care about it. And, and you live under your mom and dad's, yeah, right, yeah. sort of thing. And you're invincible. You don't need health care. I was only 17. Yeah. yeah, I was 17. And, yeah, I don't – yeah, I jumped at it. I, I couldn't – from there, very quickly realized that I jumped into – a hotbed of, of uh, politics and trade unionism, uh, which is all one and the same. What union was that? 
That was the United Automobile Workers. Before the CAW? Yeah, that's part of the story, actually. That's a, a big part of the story on on why the Waffle Party and why the nationalism and, and that and what was going on. But I, I don't think many people, I don't think many people today realize how militant and powerful the trade union movement was in those days. And, and because of my amount of years in, in the trade union movement, it, it existed with the electrical workers and existed with the auto workers were, were militant in those days. And, uh, and certainly within the local 1967, which was the, the blue collar workers in the aircraft industry, the militancy was, was extremely high. We were very successful in, in carrying grievance processes to its fruition and making sure the chains were open, that we could get the hearings. If they tried to close down the grievance procedure thing, it was not un, not a, unusual to have a down tools. A work stoppage? It's a work stoppage. But I think work stoppages were illegal. So An extended down, break? Yeah, down your still, tools, work to rule. Yeah. Words, word, expressions like that. I like that down tools. Yeah, and and they were strong. I mean, even your general um, average person who wasn't attending every local meeting on a Tuesday or whatever it was, so we're not activists. Had no problem telling their foreman to fuck off if they. That is so refreshing. <laughs> what the foreman was doing? It was. We've lost so much there. It, it was so. My father uh, was a shop steward. In the same local? Local 1967. Okay, yeah. He was blue collar. Oh. I was local 673. Okay. So my, my, but my dad was in, a, he was in a caucus called the Unity Caucus. And the Unity Caucus was, a lot of leaders in the movement were, were in it. There was, uh, you know, the plant chairman was in it. The president wasn't. So you had the executive board within unions and you've got the, shop floor act of elections and the real power of the militancy belongs to the shop stewards and the uh, and the plant chairman it should the plant chairman be, 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 being the leader the elected leader of all the shop stewards and the committee represent representatives so the unity caucus would meet at our house your your nana uh, my mom taught me and and i was very interested but i wasn't allowed to attend because it was strictly for blue-collar workers to to listen down the rads <laughs> of the of the house. So go upstairs and listen to the rads, and you could hear uh, perfectly what was going on in the meeting in the basement. And that's how I first became aware that within the Unity Caucus, it it, it was a privilege. I would love to have been allowed to join the Unity Caucus. It was a privilege because we had Marxists active Mar Marxist mem members of the, the Communist Party of Canada. What year is this, right? Just to give people an idea of the political environment. Okay, on or about um, 70, 70, 71. Okay. Right, early 70s. Mm -hmm. When this, the shit was going on with the Waffle and NDP. It just yeah. started sort of thing. It was yeah. distance. So there was the atmosphere that we worked in. I was also on the executive of the uh, of local nineteen uh, six seven three. My first election, I got duly elected by acclamation because it was hard to get 
people active. Why did you want to do it? You could just punch in, punch out. Oh, because oh, because I believed in 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 workers being protected. I believed in workers' rights. I be, you could I, let someone else do that, though. Oh, my my favorite uh, trick was finding uh, non-union people because, of course, you have non-union people because they handle confidential information or whatever excuse they can not to make them join the union. So they're they're non-union. Catch them doing anything that even came close to a union job. <laughs> And grieving. <laughs> that's such an old trope, for, too, of unions, right? Like, yeah. that's, that division of labor. <laughs> yeah. And then you put in a grievance for the worker that should have been doing that work. Yeah. And you put in a grievance at time and a half for overtime because you obviously couldn't get it done during the, the day. You were trying to make them sick of you or make that, that job that you kept grieving a union job. And within any union, is strength is the the amount of the membership and the type of membership. But it was very frustrating being in a, a white-collar union with a radical attitude. There wasn't many of us, I, few and far between. Meaning you had the radical attitude, not your work, maybe your workforce or your local. No, our, our workforce was whatever, whatever the headquarters were down in uh, Black Creek, Michigan. Leonard Woodcock was the was the uh, president of the UAW at that time. Walter Ruther had, had passed or whatever. And uh, you had the same as what we've had for years and the same as what we have today. You, you have the leaders of the union suck up to the, uh, be it the Canadian Labor Congress or be it in this case, Black Creek, Michigan, the, the headquarters of the of the UAW, and not the American headquarters, the headquarters, of the UAW. So every president, remember the executive part, every president reported to Black Creek, Michigan. So whatever motions were coming through on the shop, on the union meetings to ratify things uh, were just rubber stamped. And it was hard to even get a debate. Just wanted to cut in a little bit and explain why you emphasize that a little bit, because I pre-warned you I was going to ask about the nationalist element that existed in the trade union and in the Waffle Party that, you know, we wouldn't really tolerate at at this point as leftists. But uh, much of that driver was that alienation within your union, right? Where you were answering to an American headquarters and being re- it being so removed from your needs. And it wasn't a great relationship, right? No. Quite often the, un- the Canadian unions were asked to make concessions that the Americans had to make. And, you know, there was, there was tension there, right? So, because I asked you about that, right? I was disheartened when we had James Naylor on and it was something I didn't know that, you know, there was a real Canadian nationalist element amongst the radical left in Canada at that time, because, you know, we both you and I rail against nationalism as it is now, but context is important. I'm not sure it was national. I think it was very comforting for Dennis McDermott of the Canadian Labour Congress and leader of the UAW at one point in time, and all of those, uh, the Lewises and the... Oh, we'll get to them. The families and all that to call us that we had a nationalist. We were either nationalist or communist. Okay. National communists, I guess, is what they thought we were. But 
I think we have to remember the time and the era, and I'm not sure it's much different today with some people. There was, there was a huge anti-Americanism and amongst the left, and the Vietnam War was still going on. So when you stood up on a, on a, a union floor and wanted to know what your rights were as a worker, if they started to make us, we built wings at that factory, so if they started to give us parts for fighter planes to go uh, bomb the, 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 the people in Vietnam, what rights would we have as a worker to refuse on, on, on grounds of pacification or just anti-murder? And you couldn't get your aunt. I mean, it was a fight. You were booed on the shop. You were booed on the floor. And you were booed by the chair. You had to, I mean, one of the first things as a leftist, you had to learn how to challenge the chair to get the chair out of there and take over the chair so you could speak to the people. On That was like our whole last episode on conventions. <laughs> was so, it really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. you got to have someone who knows Robert's rules That's beside right. you if you don't fully understand yeah. them yourself. So, you know, it's not just limited oh. to the NDP. <laughs> Most activists within the union could quote you, cite and verse the collective agreement by clause, by article. So wow. it wasn't hard to look it up in a book. You, you sort of knew where to go. And then a, a substantial amount of trade unions also were very up to date on Robert's Rules of Order. Out of necessity, out right? Of, like not because it's part of your job or like. Oh, they'll something. abuse you otherwise. Like. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, and they'll do it anyway. <laughs> they do it anyway. They, they'll get you back. Yeah, they'll get you some other way. But at least you got you got to be able to voice your your grievances or, or your case to to the membership. And sometimes you want. It was uh, quite interesting how, how sometimes the membership would surprisingly support a leftist thing. So back to my point though was Nixon had brought in wage guidelines to the United States, which was what the UAW was trying to. A part of the deal that they were trying to inflict on the Canadian workers who had rejected the contract there and, and led to, oh God, a 13-week strike, a long strike, a long strike. That is a long strike. Where work, you're asking workers to go for 13 weeks and they don't have, their strike pay would not cover their rent. Never mind the food on the table, it would not cover the rent. I can still remember what the strike pay was in 70, $71, $30 if you were single, 35 if you were married, and 40 if you had kids. It wouldn't matter how many kids you had. It was 17. <laughs> I think. I think rent was around $120 a month or something. But that's that still plays into today trying to keep workers on side with the idea of a strike, right? Being able to yeah. withstand living on strike pay and all the other inconveniences that come with striking. Yeah, but but there is hope. Uh, uh, the other day I listened to writers coming from out of L.A. who are on strike as as anybody watches TV knows. And their, their militancy is, was quite amazing. They talked about class... They, they talked openly about class system and they talked about what L.A. is to them. And it was it was heartwarming. Class consciousness does exist. It, it ebbs does. and flows, but yeah. we find pockets. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so the the nationalist label was was there and we, we used expressions like independent Canadian UAW. 
And the Waffles called themselves the movement for an independent socialist Canada. Correct. I think the expression independence was was wrongly used. It's better than nationalist, <laughs> but it, it you know, better. it explains it better. the need more, right? Like Ex- exactly freedom from. You know. We wanted separation from the United States. Yeah, some some other country governing us financially and electorally as well. It, it, they saw a lot of the people in the waffle saw, and I I think that's what attracted me to them. I. I'd been to quite a few meetings downtown uh, at the U of T campus and stuff like that. Small meetings. Waffle meetings we're talking, right? No, Communist Party meetings. Okay. So the Communist Party had been taking me under their wing a little bit and just come to the meeting and meet people and come to this bar. And That's how it starts. That. That's how it starts. They get you drunk and, uh, and therefore you're susceptible to some of their ideas. <laughs> and. And to be honest, knowing you, though, you just probably started getting on your own soapbox. They didn't yeah. need to bring oh, you along well, all that much. I, I didn't know much about them. Man. Never, never hated them. Never, never have. And he was a friend of Mark's is a friend of mine. But uh, uh, my, my, my dad, Papa, warned me. He didn't threaten me. He warned me that if I joined the Communist Party, my life would change. And his fear was that. I'd become blacklisted, which I w- did get blacklisted from the from jobs. I got blacklisted. I got blacklisted from the Masonic Lodge because the president of the Bra- of Brampton local stood up and said it, that I was a communist radical. And uh, what's well, funny because one of my questions for you, just out of jest, was how many times do you think you've been called a communist? Oh. <laughs> and obviously I'm not looking for a number but you know it it started long ago and continues to this day I'm sure. Oh, I got yeah. Oh, it, it, <laughs> I belong to a private golf club. <laughs> so you're not supposed to tell anyone that. <laughs> and I uh I'm as open at the the I'm 28 years there and I'm as open at the course as I am with you right now on the microphone. So lots of times. Yeah. Lots and lots and lots of times. Surprisingly, how when you spread the word, though, and you continue to spread the word, and if you stay constant with the word, surprisingly, how many friends you have. Yeah, there's still people who, you know, shy away from it. Uh, You know, one of the biggest irks that we have is folks use uh, democratic socialist as though it's soften the blow for people. Just, you know, but we don't, I know, I don't really have a taste for that. You go all in or nothing at all. Even in our, in one of the episodes we've got in the works, I use a clip from that song, you know, if you ain't been called a red. And because I just think it's a theme throughout, but. It's Pete Seeger, isn't it? Well, it's an IWW song. So you'll find all kinds of people that have picked it up and and have their versions. I wanted to, I know you said like your days of organizing the workplace was more important than the waffle party experience but you know as our audience will know i've we've mentioned the waffle party a few times we have definitely mentioned attempts to democratize and radicalize the ndp many 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 times and you know the repercussions that are born from that uh, just because there's just so many experiences to go over let me give people a little Coles notes. You can correct me if I'm wrong about any of this of what the Waffle Party is, and then we'll talk about your experience. All right? 
You, yeah. You'll give it a little more depth than my my wiki notes version, but I'm not sure. It's well over fifty years ago, oh, so okay. Well, at my age, try and recall. Right. No one fact check any of this, okay? So <laughs> the Waffle Party has been described as like a party within the party. You know, think think socialist caucus, but more bred from a youth movement, a, a, a leftist movement within the party, and you know, true to form, it didn't go over all that well with the establishment, um, a thorn in their side. I think that's how Stephen Lewis described the Waffle Party. Uh, one, because they specifically challenged his nomination race in Davenport. So I think I've mentioned here on the, you know, before my history, obviously, and I'll say, you know, my dad was also a Waffle member in, in conversations and it'll get mixed reviews <laughs> and it'll quickly, I'll actually be able to filter through people quite quickly based on their response. Kind of like when you say, you know, you're a socialist and you wait for the reaction, see if it's safe, because people go both ways when they talk about the Waffle Party. A lot of us weren't around, so we're going off secondhand information. And we too get warnings about joining socialist caucuses and, and what will happen to you from that. But, you know, what would you describe as the main purpose of the Waffle Party as you understood it? What were y'all trying to do, like number one? I think the Waffle was started around 69. And so by the time I had met the Waffle and and gone to some meetings was prior, well prior to the Ontario, famous Ontario convention that kicked the waffle, basically kicked the waffle party out of the party. Uh, you had to sign a declaration saying that, you know, I've never been a red. <laughs> you might as well have signed that. And they kicked, kicked them out of the party. Uh, so it was prior to that on around 71, probably. Yeah. But they were still meeting down at the uh, the university halls, because they were well-connected through their leadership. There was a lot of professors that were active in the Waffle uh, movement. Those leaders that continued to exist through the Waffle Party, there's no doubt they were socialists. Those that remained within the party were socialists. The, the two leaders they talk about the most were James Laxer and Mel Watkins. If you check, just check out their resumes, they're quite impressive. James Laxer, I can't remember if it was a Wednesday night or whatever, but we would go to his father's house, which one, was one of these old Toronto homes. And that uh, was Bob Laxer. Bob's claim to fame was that he was one of the first Canadians to walk out of the Communist Party. Uh, because of the invasion of, of Hungary in 56, I guess it was. Bob would help us understand what the manifesto was all about. And, uh, the communist manifesto? Bob believed that you had to understand the manifesto to be a socialist. Didn't, didn't mean you had any support for Moscow or the, you know, the conflicts that existed and how the party was structured. That's the trappings we still deal with today. Absolutely. And, and uh, absolutely. Yeah. So labor was what got me to the Waffle Party. And they were in very supportive, very supportive. And, and in almost all the writings of the struggle that was going on with the labor movement, with the dictatorial American rules being imposed upon people, a huge percent of the, the working population were unionized. In, in the 70s, I think one, oh, I don't know. It, it, it was large. It was over a third of factory workers were, were unionized. And 
back when we had factories. <laughs> and and, uh, and by the way, the Waffle Party would also be very instrumental in um, working with uh, people who had who were, who were taking strike actions to solidarity. You know, on, on the picket lines and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, on the picket line with them, getting arrested with them, and and that's where I. I got first recognized. Okay, so all of a sudden I'm in local 673 getting booed off the floor by my executive board up there. That would catch my eye, I'll tell you. All, my, all of a sudden I'm in the waffle party, and they're asking me to to actually drive out to rural places, I thought in those days, like Kitchener and Brantford, to where workers would be on strike and go to the union hall and speak to them about their cause and speak to them about what, the parallel things that were happening to us in the aircraft industry and why there was a need for uh, organization to to have all our union dues remain in Canada and have our own Canadian rights and you know live under a constitution that says that you could not be impeded by some other nation's sovereignty. I think that's where the nationalist comes in. And I'm still not sure it's nationalism as, as much as it's a, a revolutionary independence movement. A lot of the names that are still around, a lot of the names that are still around, fought against the, the waffle and fought against the independent Canadian union movement at that time. Why? And did very well, and de- did very well for themselves in leading the UAW uh, as a, an initial Canadian entity, but it wasn't radicalized, it was granted you're talking about the C, the creation of the CAW. I was talking about the creation of CAW, yeah. and the real the real story should be written on those those people. That's why that's why no longer do you get unions even fighting for cost of living allowances. I mean, it's absolutely. We had cola in the seventies, early seventies. We had cola. Imagine if you had cola today. Oh my God, the inflation rate and the money coming into you as a worker to help pay for your rent and your food. You. You don't even hear it anymore. You don't even hear it coming out of any of their mouths. And I think they're all tied in because I don't know them all and everything, so I don't want to insult them. But I don't hear from the NDP and I don't hear from the union leaders the word socialist. And I don't hear them talking about rent strikes, for example, that they're needed right now. And that's who the NDP is. So the NDP basically kicked, gave gave no choice but to leave the party. So let's just take it take it back a little bit because I my, the question I had to you and you've kind of answered it but I'm going to make sure we're clear the purpose of the Waffle Party was to make it a party that would call for rent strikes and espouse socialist values and be that working class party you thought it was yes yes because some people describe it as the Waffles were trying to take over the NDP right and the, you know that's your, the narrative we're going to get is from the Lewis family, no. is from the same establishment that still runs the, the NDP, to be honest. Because I'll tell you, yeah. uh, and before we kind of skip over them kicking out the Waffle Party, I want to remind some of my listeners just like what the story was there a little bit, because it really resonates with me when I read it. I don't know. I guess there was a lump in my throat because... It wasn't a convention. The Ontario NDP were brought forth a motion by Stephen Lewis, who had essentially a personal vendetta against the waffle movement. But obviously there was a lot of political reasons for folks to resist this, as there are now, right? Like centrists, um, closet liberals. 
But, you know, it essentially was a personal vendetta because they had, like I mentioned earlier, the one of the Ontario chair for the Waffle Party ran against Lewis to be the candidate for Davenport. And they really did challenge him and probably, you know, slighted him in the process, no doubt. But he brought forth a motion at provincial council, provincial council, the same council that removed my membership for being critical of a particular sect of the leadership there. So it, it was just like this continued pattern that has now like this familial tie to me that it's almost the same generation because I'll tell you, I had it out with his sister, Janet Solberg, who essentially started harassing me on the internet for being a commie, for trying to democratize the party, calling me bile. She's the anti-harassment officer for the Ontario NDP, and she was online calling me bile. And the worst of humanity is how she described me in public. That made me obviously really mad to read that, that for this long. So you're right. This is 72 that this happened. It was a response to stuff that happened in 71. But they, yeah, they literally kicked all these folks out of the party for being radical. There was no breaking of the constitution mentioned it was a it was a pr it was like we can't have these people be a part of us and council voted for it so it wasn't a top down authoritarian move it was because we've explained how the party actually works that they form council they form the executive and this is why but you know we didn't live that and i think folks that are experiencing the party now that should sit with them for a little bit you know since the 70s they have been removing people from the party quite openly um, with the support of the most hyper-partisan amongst us to remove the very people that we need in the party to push it to be where we expect it to be with all the griping that we do online and how the messaging is crap and the policies are crap and the agreement with the liberals is crap and the Ontario NDP can't win an election. All of that has been because of, I think, in my personal opinion, this sustained effort to remove these radical elements. Did it matter to you when they kicked you out? Like, did you guys, because, you know, if you read about the waffles, essentially it imploded right after that. It didn't, it wasn't around very long. It, it didn't matter a lot to me because I was young. Okay. Right. So I didn't have a lot of experience in the party. I'm sure it mattered a lot to those who had been with the party a long time. They also knew that the manifesto that was written was not far off the original Tommy Douglas manifesto. The Regina manifesto? The, yeah. Yeah, there was not a lot of difference between the Regina Manifesto and the Waffle Manifesto. The, the principles were the same, and that's what can, you know, that was one of the things that Lewis used to condemn them. I did go door to door for James Laxer. And me. In York, out by Yorkdale someplace, I can't remember, doing all the apartments. And and you know what? It wasn't a bad experience. I remember being scared for it. I've come back to sort of helping the party a little bit when I when I see the opportunity. But every time I do it, I get sort of hurt. I think I told you the last time was with Olivia Chow and giving the money and being all excited because I was invited to her house with Jack Layton. And when I get there, I there's union leaders and there's celebrities and get to talk to the people who were organizing her campaign and they're progressive conservatives or conservatives, whatever you want to call them. You're talking about Olivia Chow's last Toronto mayoral campaign. Not not this one, or, or previous one. Yeah. That, that, that's correct. I remember you being so disappointed by that. I just, right? yeah. 
I felt like canceling. You know, so I gave them prepaid checks. I felt like canceling them, but I, I didn't because I, I, I still think we might have been in a better place if, if Chow had won. For sure. When, when we say it was radical times, it, the, the radical things were, were not radical. They were fixing the housing problem, uh, public ownership of factories if required. Things that, I, I mean, I, I can't believe where we've got to. Today in the House in Queen's Park, the leader of the NDP stood up and asked Doug Ford to stand up and say that the emergency hospital that's closing in Minden would be the last one until the people of Ontario would be the last one. And I, I looked at that and I said, you just stood up and said it would be perfectly acceptable to be closing any emergency wards down and and that's the party so i'm not sure as an old man now and i don't know if it's worthwhile to try to fix this liberal neoliberal party i you know and the same question has gone on and on and on and on and on should we start up our own party or should we change from within i think the change from within propaganda comes from union leaders and to this day politicians who who believe that the way it is is the way it should remain. I don't think you can change this party from within. I think under the constitution of the party, you could. I I don't know how you can wrestle that, though. Well, the thing that exists now is the director position doesn't fall under the constitution. And, you know, we've spent a few episodes explaining just how it's structured to not ever have the constitution apply in any meaningful way. So I want to ask you, though, on a personal note, and, you know, you know, I ran for president of the party twice, (laughs) you know, federally and and the Ontario NDP, but strictly to, you know, we never had a name for ourselves. (laughs) We didn't have internal elections. We were just really like grassroots members, super frustrated with what we were seeing in the same way you folks were. No one pointed us in I drew them all in, you know, they just connected with people. We tried really hard with the resources that we had and the knowledge that we had. And did you ever think to tell me that it wasn't possible or were you hopeful or, you know, was it like she's going to have to figure this out herself? Because I'm in that position with some people now that they're still trying to come through and do the same thing, you know, Waffles tried to do that other people did after the Waffles that I tried to do. And I... I want to like scream to them, like run away. <laughs> no. Um, uh, first of all, I don't know. I don't know if I'm right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. So to see you with your enthusiasm that you had to run for the leadership in the first place. And then secondly, to kick the shit out of them for, for what they're doing to the people. Why would I ever stop you from doing that? <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. I, you know, I'm not like I wasn't like. Why didn't you protect me? You're not wasting your time. Uh, what I what I said was I I don't know which side of the coin would be the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I could talk to uh, Merritt Styles and and all of them. Ask them what the, what like seriously what the hell are you. What, what are you doing? I don't know. I don't even know if they know what they're doing. I don't know their background. I don't know if they've ever been trained in any political philosophy. Or I think personal aspirations do a lot to people and the political machine does the rest. Yeah. That need to stay in favor is so important in the political sphere, but some people just can't do it. You know, it's just not in us to compromise our values 
you know, to do that. <laughs> Some people literally just don't have a filter like that. It just, I, I honestly can't even understand it. <laughs> I don't see authority in that way. And there's so many people like me like that too, right? So those people, I think, will always just like slam up against systems like this. So that's why I'm like trying to detour as many people as possible because, you know, I saw someone tweet the other day they were asking or, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think that politics isn't built for honest people. And my reply was, it's absolutely not built for honest people. It's not even safe for them. So, you know, the good people I find like burn out of politics and then those that are willing to just let it be rise to the top, right? They're rewarded in the same way capitalism rewards greed. Political systems reward favor and silence and complicity. So that's who we get. Who we get. But you went from, our story went from really heavy political involvement in your workplace, in the Waffle Party. But then you, start, you talked about like really losing touch with the party. What happened? Why did you stop? Okay, so I got blacklisted, right? Yeah. I didn't have a job. Couldn't get a job. I'd been told by a uh, director or whatever his title was of human resources at American Motors that I'm on a blacklist. Irish gentleman, can't remember his name. Friend of my father's and uh, he says, you're going to have trouble getting a job. And then I saw an ad in the newspaper and I applied for it and I needed money and I got a job at and the tobacco industry, of all places. This is where you and I meet. <laughs> and got a phone call a couple of weeks into that job, and it was from the tobacco workers. Oh, they, the company I was with told me they also knew who I was. You mean your... My background. That you were a commie. Yeah, I was a union organizer, a radical, and, and I had to start as soon as I could because I couldn't pay the rent. And I, I got a job with them, and uh, they put me back into school as well as a job and promoted me and promoted me. And I sort of had to, I never hid. I never denied. People knew my, my thoughts on subjects. I couldn't spout or quote Mao or. <laughs> well, okay. Every workplace draws the line, dad. But what I, what I, what I, what I, what I used to do, because we didn't have cameras in those days in all the offices, you know, they were, oh, no. I'm sure they got cameras all over the place now. But they didn't have them in those days. So I used to go down to the, with the bushes, of course, we had lots of wars going on. And used to go down to the anti-war protests down at university and get all the pamphlets and everything like that. And I'd go back to my office. Leave them in the washroom, break room. Pass it around. Pass it. Oh, no, I put it on the desk of only people in, in my department. And I put it on their desk and everything like that. And I'm, I'm positive they knew where it came from. But I would do that after every protest movement and get the propaganda and let them know what they're doing to to the Iraqis and and uh, so I, I never I never left it and uh, I retired at an early age and uh, it was liberating because after that I could say whatever I wanted whenever I wanted however I wanted got right back at it and had people calling me commies and. That must have felt nice. It was kind of. <laughs> it did. It did. Yeah, after a while, no, it doesn't no. bother you. We wear it as a badge at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's when they call us liberals that we get really upset, you know, so. Well, I I'll, I do use the expression to rile them a little bit when they call. Some of them are trying to be polite and call me a socialist, right? You know, you really are a socialist. And I say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm far left of that if you follow 
my whole <laughs> thought process. And that's, I think that scares the shit out of them. Actually. Well, I imagine the country club crew, it raises some red flags, literally. Yeah, maybe I am. I don't know. I, I missed it. I, I think my calling, if, if I had to relook history, my calling would have been, my excitement would have been within the trade union, whether it be to be the best damn organizer uh, that I could be or go through the administrative to the top. I don't, I don't know if I could have. Looking back at, uh, you know, the waffle movement and even the trade union movement of that time, could you well, name something that was missing? Can you name something that was missing? Yeah, uh, the, the CAW was missing at that time. <laughs> like a real union. The CAW was missing. The The union leadership, the, there, there was very few union leaders supported the Waffle Party. Very few. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It was a very instrumental um, and glaring wh- where they stood. And they stood with the the Lewises. So those that ended up going to the, the, the Waffle meetings and, and conventions and learnings and trying to form up party which is not easy you got to try and get a bunch of free thinkers to to put together a new manifesto or something like that and from the floor it's it's but it's exciting as hell the prospect scares me it's exciting as hell <laughs> but daunting and but daunting and uh the only ones that were there were there, there wasn't many of us there wasn't many of us and even the even the militant trade unionists that, that I talked about within the UAW, those who obviously remember the, the CP or the Communist Party would not attend, right? That, that's obvious. But those who were sort of free independent thinkers, members of the NDP as a labor representative, labor party representative, they weren't there because most of those people that were leading that were were. Trade unionists and and trade unionists hate getting caught up in in the bureaucracy of political parties. Everybody does, except uh, yeah, but yeah, I well, except those who thrive. <laughs> those who thrive are those who they can at least tolerate it. Obviously, there was a bit of a class system even within the the labor movement. So the white, I mean, the white collar unions were horrible. They were horrible. <laughs> and you say that coming from one. And, and it's part of the problem you have today with, with it all. I mean, all of a sudden, if you had the militants that we used to have with coal and stuff like that, so instead of paying part-time workers minimum wages, they'd be fighting for them. We'd be getting them up where they could afford to pay their rents and maybe get enough money to go and buy their first house, affordable house that we built for them, but the people built for the people. And they go out. Part of the problem with that is is what are you going to do with the class system? What are you What are you going to do? Like all of a sudden, you get the I'm all right, Jack, amongst the whole rich trade unionists. So when you ask, my experience anyways, when you ask a thousand members to go on strike because we don't want to bomb the people in Vietnam, so we're not building these things, so we'll down tools or go on strike or do whatever it is, uh, you're not going to get support. I don't know what it would take to get that su- that support. You mean now? Yeah. Um, and, and I've yet to, and I'm sure it's out there, and somebody point me in the right direction of a book that tells me how to stop the disease of trade unions getting so much money for the workers, not too much money, so much money for the workers, 
<clears throat> that they've turned them off politically. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a very thin line to walk, mm-hmm. indeed. You know, because a lot of unions are very self-serving in the way that they no longer fight for employment standards, but just their collective bargaining, just the direct needs, and they feel like the only way to get people to support the idea that they pay union dues is a return on their paycheck and nothing else. A huge obstacle. Do they even have a political wing of the of the trade unions anymore? Yeah, well, not or? all trade unions or unions are created equal. So some do, but some political wings are so heavily controlled and formed from the top down. It's like the committees within the NDP. Um, they're not actually meant to be all that political in terms of what what people call radical. I know you, you made that correction there. And we do that in the show a lot. We say radical. It's not really radical yeah, to yeah. think that everyone should have a fucking roof over their head. But that's the label that we're given. And to give you an idea that like it's not the NDP, it's to the left of that, to the left of anything we're seeing right now. So, but yeah, like that, that is just really not tolerated in many spaces at all, union or non-union. And They're making room. That's why. I'm hopeful for Opsu and J.P. Hornick. And they recently announced um, a real restructuring that would be based on the grassroots needs and hopefully, you know, would ideally provide a new model for a union for progressive organizations to follow. You know, that is just far in the future, but... So would this be a new Congress? We'll have to get JP on and ask them. I don't think there's a lot of details, but I don't think JP, you know, I think JP Hornick's the kind of leader that understands that they don't have the vision, that they're going to go collect that vision and make it happen, right? Rather than them deciding that they know exactly what it... That'd be exciting to listen to. Yeah. And that would be one of my questions. Could this be the grassroots of of a new labor Congress? A more progressive Labour Congress. Well, I think first we have to figure out how to restructure outside of the framework we know. Because almost every institution we create, even if it's a new political party, we typically fall into the trappings of, just like the CAW, mimicking what we know, right? The same kind of structure, pyramid structure. And it's very colonial and it, it ends up like, you know, people spinning their wheels. So it has to be a completely different vision of how to organize. Um, So I'm glad there's people working on it because that's another daunting task. I want to shift to the personal again a little bit. Much am I getting paid? Nothing. None of us here get paid. It's a true cooperative. (laughs) But we do appreciate our patrons. (laughs) I asked you at the beginning of the show who radicalized you. I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. So surely you know... You radicalized me. <laughs> you politicized me. For sure. And I'm sure there... Um, I knew this would happen. <laughs> You're going to make me... It's okay. <laughs> Santiago is used to this. There's certain episodes that... I'm worried about breaking down myself. It's okay. All right. Let me explain. I know you understand, perhaps, but for the audience. One of my earliest memories, political memories, is my mom went out... And my dad had rented a movie and he had me watch it specifically when my mom wasn't home because (laughs) let's be honest, I don't know how old I was, but I was entirely too young to be watching Cry Freedom, a movie about human rights lawyer Stephen Biko 
in apartheid South Africa. I also vividly remembering watching Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing and experiencing those and asking questions around those and emotionally reacting to the scenes in those movies of incredible violence visited on black people by authorities surely shaped me, especially knowing that I still remember it so clearly. And I remember the kitchen table. I was an only child, so not just the kitchen table, but anytime we went out, family gatherings. I'm also the oldest cousin. I was a part of a lot of adult conversations, and, you know, none of you know my dad, but if you did, you would know that there is no dinner without a political conversation. <laughs> that is just his bread and butter. That is what interests him the most, as he explained here. Like, it was... We were always talking politics. I, I wasn't talking politics, I guess, but I was definitely soaking it up. Do you, did you realize you were politicizing me? Was that intentional or was it just by proxy? Because I mean, like sneaking me that movie was clearly intentional, right? Like you were on a mission there to make me understand what was happening over there. It wasn't, it wasn't by, it wasn't by plan. It would be by, by nature, um, natural tendency of mine, um, the same as handing out the pamphlets to educate the people. I think you were old enough for <laughs> the great the great cry freedom and Spike Lee. I told you I met Spike Lee. I do remember that. At, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the very first uh, Dream Team basketball uh, game in the Atlanta Olympics. No, no. I, I, I think other sayings, oh, something I used to to hate that I could not understand coming here as a, a young boy to to Canada. There was a general thing, it still exists, where I hear people say, oh, you can't talk politics at the dinner table. But they, they, they go further. Politics, money, and religion, right? Po yeah, politics, money, and religion. Although generally people who say that do talk money all the time. but And religion. They also, you also you can't talk politics any place and to me to me politics is, is life it's the most it's life it's how you build your society it's how you build your un, unless you just want people to remain absolutely stupid and have those who control the economy to to run your way of life too and exactly what your laws will be and and that so that always insulted me and even when i was young oh you can't talk politics yeah you can talk politics whenever you want that goes back to you in school, I think. That was you trying to talk politics by introducing the NDP. That was outside of the curriculum. That was you inserting, you know, working class politics where it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Papa had an influence on me as well because what I got from him was the the rights of every worker. He wasn't into politics. He never never got deep into the organization of a party and and stuff like that, but it was very much into uh, the right, the rights of a worker on the job. All those things contributed to me. Bob Laxer, in his own little way, for a few weeks contributed to me. John McLennan, who was a member of the CP that I played soccer with, with the UAW team, and he he had he had, he had a, a positive influence on me. He would take the time to to explain to a non-believer what the CP was to him. I want to thank you for politicizing me. I want to thank you for having a soapbox all the time, even though sometimes I thought it was really annoying and couldn't get a word in. <laughs> because 
I too like rail against that idea of not talking about politics, but not so much the not talking about it, the aversion to it, the I'm not political. And that's not true. We're all political. And so I feel privileged to be politically knowledgeable, right? It, it allows me to maneuver through these systems a lot easier than had I grown up not understanding the trappings of power and the forces at play. Because um, I grew up my whole life understanding that, whereas a lot of people have to wake up into it. And so I probably never thanked you. And, you know, I've made fun of you so many times, you know, <laughs> there he goes on his soapbox. But I was always very proud of that, to have a dad who was so principled and opinionated and able to articulate it. Because, you know, that's a skill not everybody has. And that's why you can't make non-believers believers sometimes because, you know, you got to learn how to talk about it as well, right? And you were always able to kind of get to the bar and talk about it with a mate beside you without it, for the most part, <laughs> escalating into anything, you know, confrontational. And that's me, right? Like, I talk politics with anybody who <laughs> will listen or <laughs> sometimes don't listen. And... um I think that bravery comes from seeing you do it and, and it just being such a normal part of my life and probably why I'm able to have this podcast and just talk politics into a microphone for an hour if I have to. So thank you. I could say you're welcome, but it wasn't <laughs> like I was trying to give you know, a gift. Uh, the gift was to seeing what you did. The gift in return was that and... Uh, uh, what you did with your university education and learning from the masters, truly. Including Professor David McNally. <laughs> yeah, David McNally. Uh, I mean, that, how fortunate is that? I mean, I think it's fantastic. And your achievements and the work that you do. I'm so I'm equally proud of you. Thank you. And... Uh, when people, I, I have been known to say as well, when people say, call me a radical, for example, is I, I say to them, oh, you should see, you should meet my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should see James. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to come. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's where I was maybe at 17, at five. Um, oh, my God. In terms of <laughs> politics. Yeah, no, thank you for coming on and taking the time to walk down memory lane, even if you felt like you, I, I think you had a lot of recall. You had a lot of details you were able to kind of call up. But I've been, I've been scared shit of this since the time, since you asked me, because I'm going, oh, my God, what, what was that guy's name? But, uh, I mean, it's over 50 years ago. And those details aren't what make the story, right? It's more your remembered experience which you know it's not going to be yeah. the same for everybody but i wanted yours specifically that is a wrap on another episode of blueprints of disruption thank you for joining us also a very big thank you to the producer of our show santiago halu quintero blueprints of disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively you can follow us on twitter at bp of disruption if you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo Please share our content, and if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.